let's open up to the second chapter of the letter to the Ephesians. And I'd like to read to you starting in the eighth verse. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed groweth together unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. From this passage, I would like to particularly focus on two things that come out of this. One is what it means to have access unto the Father. And the other is what it means to be a holy temple in the Lord. But before we dive into this passage, I'd like to go back and get some of the background context of all that's here. And I admit this is a difficult passage. The language is a little difficult. The subject is difficult, partly because it's dealing with something that God was doing that to us in our time and in our situation is very, uh, in many ways, very far removed because it's dealing with this uniting of Jew and Gentile together, which God was particularly beginning to do in this time of history when this letter to the Ephesians are written. But it's a beautiful uh, statement of truth about what God has done and is doing through Jesus Christ to unite his people together into one body, into one temple, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit where God himself comes to dwell among his people. 
and takes those who were previously uh, separated from each other and unites them together in one body and takes a people who were previously separated from God and unites them to God himself and builds us together in one people where God himself comes to dwell. So the message of what is being written about here is quite profound and quite beautiful. So I hope we can draw that out as we consider what God has done through history and is doing even today. If we go back to the very beginning of the creation of humankind, God made Adam and Eve, and it says he placed them in a garden that he planted in Eden. In Eden was a very special place like nowhere else that we know of and experience on earth because Eden was a sort of place where it was a meeting place between heaven and earth. It was a place where the heavenly and the earthly were united together. And that is much of what the book of Ephesians is about. Uh, Back in chapter one, it spoke about what the what the purpose and the work of Christ was in verse 10 of chapter 1, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. That God's grand plan and grand purpose is to unite heaven and earth in Christ and that we are caught up in and part of that work as God unites us to his family, makes us part of his family. And so it speaks about adoption and speaks about salvation and speaks about taking sinners who are dead in trespasses and sins and making us alive in Christ, that we might be united together in one body by the cross. Well, Eden was a very special place. It was it was on a mountain and mountains were often uh, places where it, it signified by its very geography that it was elevated up above everything else and it was closer to heaven than anywhere else on the earth. And Eden was not just uh, symbolically like that, but Eden was truly like that because it says, first of all, you have the earthly. Adam was made from what? The dust of the earth. His name, Adam, even refers to his origin as being made from the earth, being made from the ground. And so he was earthly in his in his being. Mankind was earthly. Adam and Eve, their name was called Adam and they were made from the earth. But God breathed into them the breath of life and they became living souls. And so there in the Garden of Eden, you had Adam, you had Eve, you had earthly creatures that God had made, but you also had them walking with God in the cool of the day. We, we read that, but do we stop and consider the significance of that, that they actually fellowship directly in the very presence of God? So it wasn't just a symbol, but it was a reality that they were there where heaven and earth met together and the presence of God was there in their midst. And it was the entrance of sin into that situation that caused them to be exiled from the garden. They were cast out and cherubims were were set 
with flaming swords to keep the way that they could not enter back in to that place. And so they were cast out of that because of sin. And sin brought about a breach of man's fellowship with God. But Eden, that you can't imagine a better place. It's called a paradise. Everything was beautiful. Everything was lush. Everything was overflowing with all the things that would bring joy. And most of all, the presence of God was there. And they had access to his presence. They could walk with him and talk with him and be there in his midst. And it's because of sin that they were cast out. Well, that wasn't the only time that man rebelled against God and that rebellion brought about separation from God. Another very important historical event is a situation that happened at the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, it says all of of people were united together. They were of one lip and they were of one speech. That means not only that they spoke the same language and they understood each other's words, they were united together in that they were able to communicate with each other, but it also means that they confessed the same thing. They had a unified belief system. And in their unified belief system, they intended to uh, build a tower that reached unto heaven itself. Picture... In your mind, perhaps, I don't know exactly what this tower would have looked like, but picture in your mind a a gigantic pyramid stretching up to heaven. Because that, that, with a pyramid with stairs going up the sides of it so that someone could walk up. There are many of these types of structures from the ancient world where ancient people built these structures because they were building their own mountain to heaven. They were trying to build a human replacement for Eden, a place where they might be able, by their ingenuity and their efforts and their designs, to gain access to heavenly places. And they built this great tower. And it says God looked down and and he came down and he confused their languages, and he scattered the nations across the face of the earth. And that's really where the nations of the world come from in their original form. They were scattered because their languages were confused. They weren't able to talk and to communicate with each other. And if you've ever uh, interacted with people from other languages, other cultures, uh, perhaps learned foreign languages, you understand how powerful The ability to understand and be understood is to people getting along with each other. And so when God confused their languages and he scattered the nations throughout, he divided the world into the nations. And God, in essence, uh, because of the rebellion of humankind, humankind rebelling against God, attempting to reach up to heaven on their own terms. And you might remember what they said when they were building this. We want to build this and make a name for ourselves. It was a rejection of being called by the name of the creator. It was a rejection of being known by his name. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to build uh, their way to heaven for themselves. And God scattered them throughout the world. And this, when you look at this picture of humanity, you are struck with a very bleak, dire situation. Mankind, humankind, separated from God. 
scattered across the face of the earth, divided from each other. What God began in its beautiful paradise situation in Eden, mankind, because of our sin, had brought about exile from God, separation from his presence, division with one another, and we were scattered across the face of the earth. And it was a bleak situation. But God, even though mankind and the devil, the powers of darkness, uh, seek to thwart God's plan and God's design, God is always finding a way to overcome and accomplish his purpose in this world. And so what God did in that time is God chose a people and separated them apart from all the other nations. He chose a man named Abraham. And he set Abraham apart and he said from Abraham he would make a nation. And from Abraham came the people of Israel. And, and you, you notice in this passage in Ephesians, it speaks about circumcision and uncircumcision. And the significance of this can be so foreign to us. But to the people that Paul's writing to, this was essential. This was critical. Because when, when God chose Abraham, he set him apart and he made from him a nation the nation that would become the people of Israel. And he set apart Israel and he made them his special people. He left all the other nations to their own gods, but he chose Israel for himself. Not that God had forsaken all the people of these other nations. God had a purpose even in all that. But he, by and large, he left these nations to their own gods, to their own ways, And he chose Israel for his own inheritance to be his special people. And they were called to be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. That is that they were going to be the ones to whom God made his presence specially known. And they would have opportunity to exemplify, that is be an example to all the other nations and to administer the blessings of God to all the nations of the world, that God might in due time heal everything that had been ruined by the sin and rebellion of man. And he was going to do it through Abraham. And so he says to Abraham, not just Abraham, I'm going to make a people out of you and you're going to be a a, a great people. They would be. But he says in thee, in thy seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's intention in calling Abraham was not just for Abraham's sake, but to heal the world through him. And so he chooses Abraham and he sets him apart and he gives him the sign of circumcision, a sign that would be in his flesh. Uh, Perhaps in a way like Abraham uh, was being cut off from all of the other nations of the world by the cutting God was putting a sign in Abraham's flesh that he was separate from all the nations of the world. And and that's where this division of Jew and Gentile come from, that the Jews were set apart by God to be a special people unto him. And then God gave them the law through Moses. And in the law, 
was not only the representation of all of God's uh, character and righteousness and moral design for them, but there was also in it all types of ordinances that were designed to keep the people of Israel separate from the nations of the world. One of the most powerful and important was something that went right to the, the heart or the stomach, if you will, of mankind. That was they had all kinds of restrictions about what they could eat and what they couldn't eat, what animals were clean and what were unclean, to the point that it made it impossible for them as a people even to eat with the Gentiles. The word Gentiles, you can interpret that that sometimes translated as heathen or nations. It is not a derogatory term. It's not a negative or positive in and of itself. It just referred to all the other nations. The Jews were set apart. Israel was special. And, and all the other nations were called Gentiles. They were the nations. They were the heathen. They were the people. I mean, heathen has a very negative connotation in our minds today. But that isn't so much... Uh, how it's used, though sometimes it is negative because these nations of the world followed false gods. And so it, it got a negative association, but it just referred to the other nations. But it was impossible because of the ordinances of what they could eat, what they could do, what they could wear. All these things made it impossible for them to even sit down and have a meal with the Gentiles. And it is into this situation that Christ and the gospel enter into 2,000 years ago. Into this situation where humanity is quite literally divided in two. Broken into two parts. So when you see the language of, of twain, twain or two. Making one. It's talking about those two parts of humanity divided off, separated from each other. They have a wall of partition between them. Here's another way it manifested itself. The temple in the Old Testament. First, uh, in Moses' time, it was the tabernacle in the wilderness. And then later on in Solomon's day, they built the, ta- the temple in a fixed location. And they moved the Holy of Holies from the old tabernacle into the very heart of that, uh, that temple made with wood and stone. And inside of that was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was the uh, tables of stone, which had the commandments on them. And there was the many other furnishings inside of that. Well, in the, uh, in the outer part of this temple complex, there was a very clear wall that separated between uh, what was called the court of the Gentiles and the inner parts, which only Jews were allowed allowed to go into. And this actually caused a lot of stir in Paul's time when he was accused of bringing Gentiles into the inner court. Uh, They found, archaeologically, they found uh, things that were written that basically said there were warnings that if Gentiles were to enter in to that inner court beyond that wall, then they were to be put to death. This is how serious it was. And there's a lot of significance to that because the temple was the place where God's presence 
was. And that was a very clear sign to the Gentiles that you only ever got so close. In fact, not only that, but there was in essence, in the way God set up the temple, it was an indication that anybody only ever got so close to God. The temple was structured in such a way that the innermost, most holy places, the places which represented God's presence itself, and in fact, uh, where God's presence came, were separated off from the people. There was a, there was a, a thick curtain that divided from between those places. And no one went in other than once a year, the high priest was allowed to go in with the blood of the sacrifices and enter in to make atonement for the people into the most holy place. And so there was in what everything God gave them, he was showing that he is a holy God. That is, he is separated off. He's distant. But in, in showing his distance, he was also indicating to them that he was willing and intended to be present with the people as well. So he made his presence known there. Um, Consider how significant this is. Back in Exodus, it talks about God giving Moses the designs for the sanctuary. And it, it says this, let them make me a sanctuary, he says, that I may dwell among them. God is saying, here's here's Israel and they're camping out in the wilderness for 40 years. They were. And during this time, God says, basically, make me a tent that I'll dwell in your midst. I'll be among you. And he was in a, in a visible way, in a powerful way, cloud uh, by day, pillar of fire by night. He was present with them there. He says, make me a tent that I may dwell among them. And then notice this, according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. God doesn't just say, make this, 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 and this and give him a list. He says, I'm going to show you what you're going to make. And then he goes on to describe the ark of the testimony, the ark of the covenant where the tables of stone were. Right in the heart of the people. You know, the people of Israel, they had literally a heart of stone with the commandments of the law chiseled into it. Uh, And a mercy seat of pure gold. And the mercy seat represented the throne of God. It was surrounded uh, by the cherubim. Two cherubims were on the sides of the mercy seat. And there was the table of showbread and there was the seven candlesticks. And, and all these other things that, that were representative of things in heaven itself. And God told Moses in another place, he said, And look that thou make them after their pattern, which was shown thee in the mount. See, God didn't just tell Moses what to make. He showed him what to make. He showed him that the things that Moses was making on earth... With human hands, there was, there was a great craftsman and, and a team of craftsmen that God inspired by his spirit to be able to make these things. 
But the things that they were making, the things that they were making were representative of things not made with hands in heaven itself. And what was on earth was representative of a heavenly reality. That is, God was showing them that in this place on earth that is separated apart and special from all other places is is where God's presence is meeting, where heaven and earth are in this location united together. And the presence of God is. It was a holy place. Now remember many weeks back now. We, we, we looked at what it means to be holy. What it means to be what's called sanctified. Like the people that Paul's writing to in Ephesians. He says saints which are at Ephesus. They were set apart consecrated for a holy purpose. And that's what it was like for the temple. You know the, the, the wood and the stone and the metals that made up this temple, you know, they were they were just like wood and stone and metals that made up anything else in the world. I mean, they were very valuable, some of them, the gold and the silver. But but the materials were uh, natural materials that came out of the earth. What made them special is that they were set apart and they were consecrated to the service of God. And we have analogies of that today. We can think of the very building in which we are sitting Right now, today, you know, when when you got out of your car and you walked in this building today and you opened up those doors and walked in here, you walked into a place that is designed and is set apart to be special for the worship of God and the fellowship of God's people. It's not it's it's made out of materials just like any other place, but it's not like any other place. And then after you open up those doors and you come in here and you sit in here, you come into an even uh, special place set apart even from the rest of the building. Because in this place is where we come together and we dedicate this time to worship God and to be into his presence. So it is a holy place. It is a holy place because it is dedicated to the service of God. It is dedicated to the worship of God. And the temple was, was that to the, to the greatest degree. It was where the very presence of God came to dwell. God says as much. He says, and there I will meet with the children of Israel and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And then after they built all of this and they placed all of those vessels and all the furnishings and all these things, just as God had said, it describes how God himself came down and dwelt in their midst. It says, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God came and filled it. And he showed by that, he signified to them that from then on, that is where God's presence would be and would meet among them. And God, in a way, concealed the magnitude of his glory. I mean, we know if God didn't hold back, if God didn't veil it in, in, in a way that pe- people would be completely overwhelmed, would would probably just fall over dead at the sight of the glory of God. But God 
gives it to us in measure so that we're not completely overwhelmed. But as it was, Moses wasn't even able to enter in because of the magnitude of the glory of God that filled that place. And God showed that that is where his presence was. But even with that, there was always in it, there was that uh, reminder that they were separated off from the presence of God. The, the thick curtain, the veil that covered the Holy of Holies and the outer wall of the temple where the Gentiles were not even able to pass through showed that there was still something that was dividing people from each other and people from God. And when we understand that, we understand the significance of that, we can begin to see the beauty of what Christ did in his work that's declared in the gospel as it's described here in Ephesians 2. After talking about salvation by grace, he goes on to talk about where uh, many of us who, uh, uh, as Gentiles, many of the readers of his letter at that time, and many of us today, where we came from. He says that you were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. See, at this time, in the uh, ordering of things in the world, when it came to the worship of the true God, Gentiles were more or less second class citizens, or that might even be putting it too stronger. They were foreigners. They weren't citizens at all, not just second class. They could worship God. They can even go to the temple, but they had to stay in that outer court. And so it would have been a revolutionary idea for someone to come along and say, guess what? That division, that wall between us, it's gone. God has taken it away. And we can not only worship at the very same place, on the very same level as one another, But we can even sit down and eat together. And God had done away with the barrier between them. So he says you were uh, called uncircumcision. He says, uh, verse 12, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is the bleak condition of of the nations of this world in the, in the time when Christ enters into it. In the fullness of time, Christ comes and he comes to a world where the vast multitude of the nations of this world are separated off from God. They have no hope. They're strangers. They don't have a right to the, to the many blessings of God's kingdom. And... Uh, That is the condition that they're in. But what Christ has done, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Those that were far from God have now been made near. And a reconciliation has happened. And it required the death of Jesus Christ. His sacrificial death was necessary to make reconciliation. And that reconciliation is at least twofold reconciliation. 
One, that reconciliation was necessary to heal the barrier between man and God. Most importantly, that sin and rebellion of mankind had caused a separation, a rift with God that could only be healed by God's initiative. That could only be healed by a sacrifice to make atonement once and for all effectively. All of those Old Testament sacrifices, they pointed to this reality, but they themselves could not accomplish it. But the Lamb of God, remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Of the world. Not just Israel, but the world. Takes away the sin. That that once and for all, not just uh, signifying God's grace and God's mercy and atonement, but accomplishing it once and for all so that reconciliation could be made. As it says, that uh, he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. He put to death the enmity between God and man. And also, also, he put to death in him the enmity between man and man. He put to death the enmity that caused the division. And it says he abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. That by fulfilling the law, fulfilling all of those ordinances, all of the restrictions that divided them apart, what they could eat, what they could not eat, all of these things, the, the feast days that they celebrated or didn't celebrate, all of these things were fulfilled and accomplished in Christ such that Jew and Gentile could now worship together, eat together, fellowship together on the same level, part of the same body, part of the same people, built together as part of the same building And have access to God together by the same blood of Jesus Christ. And so he says, for through him, it says he came and he preached peace to you which were afar off. That's speaking of the Gentiles. And to them that were nigh, speaking of the Jews. They were closer. They were closer to where they needed to be. But they also needed peace to be proclaimed. And the gospel proclaims peace. It proclaims that Jesus Christ has accomplished peace with God and thereby peace with one another. Now, we don't necessarily live in a time where this uh, source of division between them was the was the is the primary uh, source of division that exists among God's elect. But we might have uh, ways that we apply this in our time. Because God, when we understand what God's purpose is, to unite his people together in one body by the cross of Christ, that we all together as one might have access to God by the same spirit in the same body. He says, for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. And we'll circle back to that in just a moment here, but... But one more thing before that. 
Notice the last part of this chapter. We have an image of a building. A building that's being built up. It has foundation stones. Big, strong, uh, firm foundation stones. The apostles and the prophets. They lay the, the foundation with, of course, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. God is building a building. And this building includes the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. But not only that, but he says, you also, you also Ephesians, you also Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church, you also God's people in in every time and place. He says, in whom also ye are also builded together. Build it together into one building. And what is the purpose of this building? The purpose of this building is to be a habitation of God through the Spirit. Or to put it another way, a new temple. It says as much in the New Testament. Ye are the temple of God. Ye are the temple of the Holy Spirit. See, there's no, there needs be no earthly tabernacle anymore because the temple of God on earth is the people of God. Where God once uh, came to dwell in a thick cloud of his glory in the tabernacle on earth in Moses' time, or he repeated the same thing again in Solomon's time. After the temple was built, God's presence came down and filled the place. Well, he's done the same with the church. He came down on the day of Pentecost in, in flaming tongues of fire, and his spirit was poured out upon them. And, and that uh, happened again with the Gentiles, again with the Samaritans, again with the worshipers of God from among the Gentiles and showed how God had made his presence with his people so that we are the temple of God. We are the place where God has chosen to come and to dwell on this earth. We are the place where heaven and earth are united together with the very presence of God. And so... Uh, let's uh, notice here what it says about access. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Something very significant happened in the day, uh, among many, many significant things that happened in the day when Christ was crucified. When he was there on the cross, it says that the veil of the temple, that thick curtain, which divided from the holy place. It says it was torn from top to bottom. God performed a mighty act that day to signify that the way into the most holy place had been made open. And it was not just the veil of the temple that needed to be torn for that to happen, but it was the very flesh of our Savior that needed to be torn to make the way into the holy place. See, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And he, he indicated, he indicated that he, in fact, 
was the dwelling place of the presence of God. And when his flesh was torn, the way into the holy was made open. So uh, to, to wrap up today, let's read a little bit from Hebrews chapter 10, where it speaks about this glorious work of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 12. But this man, speaking of Christ, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wherefore the Holy Ghost also is witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. You might have remembered that God had said in the new covenant that he would take out their heart of stone and would give them a heart of flesh. And that's what he's doing here. The people, they had a heart of stone. At the very heart of the people was uh, into that stone in the Ark of the Covenant written the law of God. But God says, I'm going to write the law on their hearts. And it says that by one sacrifice, he had, uh, he says, um, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. When you consider the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, realize it is completely sufficient. It is completely uh, able, fully able to accomplish everything that is necessary for the reconciliation of God's people. There is not one of your sins that the uh, sacrifice of Christ is unable to accomplish reconciliation for. It is completely sufficient once and for all. He doesn't need to offer it again. He doesn't need to uh, year after year, like the high priests of old, go in and make that offering. But he has done it once and for all. And when he finished, when he'd offered it, he sat down. His work of salvation, of sacrifice was complete. For one offering, it says, by one offering, he hath perfected forever them which are sanctified. There, uh, wherefore, the Holy Ghost also is a witness for us. For after that, he saith before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest By the blood of Jesus. We are not just invited to come into the presence of God. We are not just allowed in to the presence of God. But we are called to come with boldness into the presence of God. Because of what Christ has done. He says, having boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. To enter into the presence of the Father itself in heaven. This, this statement is just mind-blowing. Imagine uh, what would have happened to a Jew in ancient Israel 
if they had just decided one day that they were going to just charge into the holiest of holies, the Levites rightly would have run them through with a spear because that was that was the penalty for doing something so uh, bold and 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 brazen because the way had not been made open yet. But now he says we have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say his flesh and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of the faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised.